Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Welcome to Gospel Saving Church. It's good to be in the house of the Lord. Amen. It's good to hear the word of the Lord this morning as we've already just taken communion. Praise be to God. And I'm just so thankful for the privilege as I always. I'm thankful to God for the privilege that he's given me to stand in front of everybody and be able to speak the word of the Lord to you and teach you. My hope is that God will teach you something out of what he taught me this week and, and partake of some, some jewel, some gold nugget of what he's given me this week. I, I hope and pray that you know, God endows you with wisdom and that that wisdom causes you to reflect on what, you know, who God is and who Christ is and act according to what he did for you. So I'm going to pray, open up our service today, and uh, we'll get into our title and uh, get teaching. So you guys want to join me in a word of prayer. Thank you, King yeah. Jesus. <laughs> I love that one song, Lord God, by Matt Redman, Lord. He just keeps repeating there, King Jesus. King Jesus, we love you. And Lord, I just, I love you, King Jesus. We love you, King Jesus. We just, we just want to welcome you, Lord. I was just reading in your word, either just last night or just yesterday, Lord, that wherever two or more are gathered in your name, Lord Jesus, you shall be in the midst of them. And Lord Jesus, we are gathered together and we know that we're gathered together in your name, King Jesus. So we welcome you, Lord. We give you front row seats, a front, front and center stage seats, Lord, to this absolute sh little sermon here, this little service we have here, Lord. We just pray that instead of me hearing people hearing me speak, Lord, we just pray that people would hear you speak, Lord Jesus. You would just inhabit me. You would just dwell within me right now. Just possess me, Lord Jesus Christ, and, and, and just speak powerful words through my mouth, Lord God, unto those that are listening to this uh, in this room and in my home and throughout McKinney, Texas, and throughout all over the world, Lord God, is your, your, these sermons are reaching all over the world, Lord God. I thank you for those believers, those listeners that are coming from SoundCloud. And I thank you, Lord God, for those listeners that are coming from iTunes. And I thank you for those viewers that are coming from YouTube, Lord God. I pray that they would be in blessed, they would be blessed and encouraged today, Lord Jesus Christ, by your Holy Spirit. I pray you'd teach us all, Lord God, your word today. And I pray we'd learn and grow in you and in our knowledge of you, Lord God. Because how can we love you more if we don't know much about you? So Lord Jesus, it's our quest to just in our lives to know as much as we possibly can know about you, great King Jesus. So Lord, we open up the floor. We give you the floor. We give you the stage. Lord, please just speak today. We love you and we praise you. and We welcome you, Lord God. And we ask all these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. So if you guys want to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 14, we're going to be in verses 1 through 12 today. So Matthew chapter 14, verses 1 through 12. We're just continuing on our, our, our continuing walk through Matthew. We've been in the book of Matthew since the beginning. We've only done a few services that haven't been right out of the book of Matthew, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. Uh, the, the title of our message today, The Sad End of a Great Soldier. The Sad End of a Great Soldier. I'm going to read the verses, and we're going to talk about them. 14, verse 1. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the report about Jesus and said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He is risen from the dead. And therefore these powers at work in him. For Herod had laid hold of John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had said to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. And although he wanted to put him to death, he feared the multitude because they counted him as a prophet. But when Herod's birthday was celebrated, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod. Therefore, he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. So she, having been prompted by her mother, said, Give me John the Baptist's head on a platter. 
and the king was sorry. Nevertheless, because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, he commanded it be given her. So he sent and had John beheaded in prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. Then his disciples came and took the body away and buried it and went and told Jesus. So we have another new chapter. We're in Matthew chapter 14. We finished Matthew chapter 13 last week. We have a brand new chapter and a brand new subject matter this week. What is that subject matter? The sad end of the life of poor John the Baptist, the great soldier. Now, in case you didn't know, John was only in his early 30s. Okay, John was only born six months before Jesus Christ was. An angel visited his mother, Elizabeth, and told them right before Jesus was you know, going to be born by Mary. Basically, you know, he was born six months around about before Jesus. And Jesus was in his early 30s. You know, at this time, he had just started his ministry not too long before this. And so John was only maybe 31 or 32 at this time. So such a short life because as we read already, John lost his life on account of, you know, his service and his love for God. John, as we've talked about before many times in Gospel Saving Church, John was a sold-out soldier for Christ. John was a mighty man of God. He was bold for God Almighty. He was bold for Jesus Christ. I mean, here in this account here, we'll get to it as we go through the verses, but if you look here, Herod was the king of the whole region that, that you know of Galilee. Actually, we learn that in Acts, and I don't know if it tells us here or you know where. I know it's in Acts, though, for sure. Uh, so Herod was a king of all Gal the Galilean region. Okay? So this is a, a pretty important guy here. You know, Herod's a pretty powerful man here. And John, John the Baptist, is basically a kind of a homeless guy like Jesus was. He wandered the wilderness and preached the gospel and preached the kingdom of heaven and so on and so forth. And so, you know, John was pretty much like this lowly beggar man. And Herod was this, you know, rich and wealthy and powerful king. And so Herod, or John the Baptist, so bold that he comes to Herod and he starts, you know, preaching to Herod about the wrong he's doing. John, you know, had no shame. He just did whatever God told him to do. He wasn't prideful, you know, because pride, you know, stops you from doing things. Pride, you know, and, and, and fear. Well, John wasn't afraid and John wasn't prideful. He just was a mighty man of God. He didn't let man get the better of him. He didn't fear man. Many times, you know, he, he had said one time to the religious leaders, brood of vipers, you know, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? That wasn't really something you said because the religious leaders of John's day had a lot of power too. Okay, so, but John, nevertheless, was a mighty soldier. That's why I titled the sermon the way I did. God gave me that title, uh, The Sad End to a Mighty Soldier. John the Baptist was a mighty soldier for God Almighty and for Jesus Christ. Unfortunately, for such a great soldier of God, as we read here, John's end was spent in prison and then a beheading. And in you know, case you didn't know, the prisons of John's day aren't like the prisons of, of our, our great America that we live in now. You know, you go to prison or you go to jail in America, it's almost better than living on your own and paying your own bills. You get three squares a day and you get a workout room and you maybe get some TV and you get to go for Bible study if you so want. This prison where John the Baptist was, was a dirty, dark, stinky, filthy, nasty place. Absolutely gross. Most times people were shackled, which means they had, they had uh, like handcuffs and things that were around their arm, around their wrists and around their ankles while they were there. It was dirty. It was usually full of water, you know, all kinds of diseases. People die there. People died there often. So this, this was not a wonderful place to be for John the Baptist. And like I said earlier, unfortunately for such a mighty man of God, you know, John had to spend his last days suffering in a horrible, dark, dank, evil prison. 
You know, but as we talked about last week, and as we talked about the week before, it's almost like God, kind of God was getting us ready to get up to this point because we remember we studied Matthew chapter 10 and, you know, 16 through I think it was 25 and where we, we talked about how Jesus said, you know, any that follow me and he started giving like the, you know, what was going to happen if you follow me? And, and if you remember uh, Matthew 10, 16, Jesus said, I send you, talking to his disciples, out as a sheep in the midst of wolves. And, and what do wolves do? Well, wolves eat sheep. So Jesus was kind of foretelling, promising those that would follow him, kind of a not so good, you know, their lives would be difficult. You know, preaching the gospel and brother will betray brother unto death and you'll be dragged and flogged and you'll be dragged before councils and, you know, for my name's sake. And, and as Jesus told this to his disciples, this was exactly what happened to John the Baptist, this great soldier for God. So it was no news. I mean, you know, his disciples knew. I don't know if John was in on that powwow, but, you know, after all, he certainly got a firsthand account of exactly what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10. And it brings me here to a very easily overlooked point that we can't overlook, you know, before we start really getting into verses 1 and 2 and start looking at John the Baptist as a whole. What is that point? Jesus never, not one time ever, in all the Gospels and his disciples who wrote the epistles after Christ was dead and they were writing the epistles to the churches, his disciples, nor Jesus, nor John, and we don't even see it in the New Testament at all, nor in the Old Testament really, he never promises us a wonderful, no suffering, no pain life on this planet Earth that we live on now, ever, not one time. And we, if we look at the lives of the disciples... They were all had moderate lives to poor. They all wandered around going wherever God sent them, doing the work of God. And what they faced was persecution from city to city. What they faced, if you read the book of Acts, some of the churches had, had wants, had need, and so other churches had to send relief to other churches. So it wasn't a, a mega church that had millions and millions and millions of dollars. These disciples, all but John, suffered persecution unto death, all for following Jesus. And that's what we read about in the New Testament. That's the kind of life we read about of a disciple, a true disciple of Christ in the New Testament. We have Jesus himself saying this. I've referenced this many times here. John 16, 33, Jesus said, I, I have told you these things so that you may have peace in me. Where did he say we'd have peace? We'd have peace in him. And then he promises us, in this world, you will. Not maybe. Not, oh, oh, you know, it might happen. You will have trouble. In this life, you will have trouble. But take heart, for I have overcome the world. Absolutely. What do we see? Lives are full of hurt and pain and suffering in this life. That's what they're full of. Since Jesus Christ came, Christians, since he came, starting with the disciples and John the Baptist, all the way up to now, have suffered persecutions from governments. They've suffered persecutions from other religious peoples. Muslims, one of the biggest. Catholics, believe it or not, were huge persecutors of Christians back in the Dark Ages, Buddhists, Hindus, all kinds of other religious peoples, persecuted Christians, not just persecutions like, you know, we don't like you, persecutions unto torture and unto death. All because people believed in this book right here. And they lived their lives for the teachings of this book, the Holy Bible, God's holy word. The dangers in our world still today still remain. The number one danger in this world today for Christians is Islam. Islam believes that there is only one God, they call him Allah, and that he has begotten nobody that's equal to him, which Jesus Christ claimed to be equal to God. So in their writings, Muhammad and Allah talk about that. 
Allah says there's no one equal to me. Anybody says that they are, ain't no good. Ain't no good. Get them. And so we see that in the Muslim world to this very day. Muslims go after, to torture, to persecute, and even kill Christians that are living in our world right now, this very day, 2014, Iraq, Iran, Saudi Arabia, Afghanistan, the number one persecutors of Christians right now, 2014, in other countries. Now, Buddhists as well, believe it or not, Hindus, in India, radicals, they believe, that, they believe that when Christians come in and pastors come in, they, all they do is teach the Word of God. They teach people about Jesus. God starts changing hearts, and then all of a sudden they get angry because they're, 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 they're getting mad because they're taking people away from their, their Hindu gods. Okay, so, But even to this day, Christians are persecuted even to death and to torture, to torture and to death in other countries. It hasn't happened yet too much here in America, but it will Unfortunately, it will one day. But even you might say, well, Pastor Ed, we, we live in America. You know, we don't see that here yet. Well, no, we don't see to that level yet. But what do we see here in America? Do we see any persecution of Christians in America? Do we see it? If we really look, I bet you this won't surprise you at all. The attitude toward Christians here in America is shocking. Real Bible-believing Christians that live their lives and stand by the Word of God are mocked. I'm made fun of when I talk about the things of God and the things of the Bible. I talked to a co-worker a long time ago. This has happened many times. And I said, well, you know, we were talking about people and how he believed that, you know, all people were generally good at the core in their hearts. And I said, well, I said, I have a problem with that. I said, because my God says that, you know, Everybody's evil and everybody's wicked. Boy, the, the whole room exploded. I got made fun of. I got mocked. Yeah, you narrow-minded, you bigot, you this, you that. All these nasty things about me. Why? Because I stood on the Word of God. I stood on the Holy Bible and what God said. Even Friday night I went out and I had a question. Somebody asked me, well, what do you believe about homosexuals? Do you believe homosexuals go to hell because they uh, want to love another man, or a man loves a man, or a woman loves a woman? And I said, well, you know, I, I only believe what God tells me. And the Word of God says that any liars, or fornicators, or adulterers, or thieves, or sodomites, or, homosexual, or homosexuals, all, any of those that practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Of God. I, I don't really know how much clearer God can get. If you live a life practicing sin, any sin, whether it's homosexuality or whether you're a, a, a pedophile or whether you go out and you're a major thief, God says you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. I, I really don't know how much plainer it can get. But yeah, oh, well, we can't, yeah, you know, you can't just take that one verse out of context. I, I just couldn't believe, and yet this person claimed themselves to be a Christian. Claimed themselves to be in love with God. And yet, his word didn't mean anything to them. We're also ostracized here in America. People just naturally just emulate and stay away from me if they don't really want to hear what I have to say, which is the majority of people that I know and that I work around, they really don't want to have much to do with me because, you know, I carry my Bible around at work and, and people know that I stand for the Bible and I stand for God. As I said earlier, we're called narrow-minded. We're called Bible thumpers. We're called bigots, haters. I've heard if you go on YouTube and you look at any any channel that has anything to do with atheism or evolution, they'll call you a... Uh, uneducated, if you believe the Bible, because they believe the Bible's for dummies, people that need a crutch to help them get through life, so we're uneducated, we're not intelligent like they are, you know, believing evolution and all that, and believing, you know, modern evolution, uh, evolutionary science, we're called uneducated. Basically, they're calling us stupid. So maybe we're not put to death here yet, 
But certainly the attitude, and if you've ever watched a Hollywood movie, you look at always the general token Christian that's on a good Hollywood movie, and that token Christian, the one that's you know holding on to the Bible and they're really believing in God, but they don't have a main part. And what what are they what are they shown as? They always show them in a bad light, and they always show them doing this and show and show them doing that. They're always Hollywood. The devil hates the true children of God, and so we're ostracized. People constantly I'll talk to them about the Bible and I'll say, well, this is what the Bible says. And uh, I won't even maybe know what they're doing. I've had people, you're judging me. Uh, and I'm like, I'm judging you for what? Well, you, well, well, you, you saw that I had, you know, you, you, I, I drink. Uh, I don't know you. I'm not, I don't know if you're an alcoholic. But yet I just told you what the Bible says about, you know, alcoholics. That any wine bibber. Any drunkard shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. People get convicted by God's Holy Spirit, and they say, oh, you're judging me just because I read the Bible. Just because I tell them what the Bible says about their sin, I'm judging them. Now, I'm not judging anybody. God's word is the judge, not me. Now, I don't know about you, but if anybody out there is listening to me, it's a real Christian and has been living the life for Christ and, and shedding their light and so on and so forth. But I, I don't know about you, but this is not a painless life for me. This is not a life of ease. This is not a wonderful, no pain-free life. Oh, I'm just walking through the tulips in a wonderful grass field, walking toward this beautiful place. Th this life is hard with that. It's not easy to be scorned. It's not easy to be made fun of. Because of what? All I do is because I stand on God's true word. That's why people treat me the way that they treat me. I mean, I like people, I love people, yet I'm scorned because I stand on the word of God. And so I don't know where the Bible, where anybody even got this idea of this wonderful life and, you know, it's going to just be peaches and cream and roses and buttercups when you come to Jesus because that's not what I read in my Bible. Because that is, believe it or not, a very common message here in America to this very day. In fact, there's a very popular, well-known American supposed Christian pastor that teaches this kind of stuff. There's actually many of them. But there's one that's very popular. He actually wrote a book, and the name of the book is, ready for this now, now all that I've talked about and all that we've read in the Bible so far, all that we've taught Matthew up to now to Matthew chapter 14, if you've ever read the Bible as a whole, here's the name of the book. Your Best Life Now. What? Well, I'm not living my best life now. What? This life is hard. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. Oh, be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. How is in this world you're going to have trouble your best life now? Wow. If that's my best life now, to have all this tribulation and all this trouble, well, I don't, I don't know that I want to go to heaven then. Because if, if this is my best life now, this is terrible, then that means that any life I have beyond this is not going to be as good as this life here. Wow. That is not biblical. That is not true according to what the Bible says if you just read the Bible. You won't read that. You won't read one verse in the Bible that says you're going to have a wonderful life. Everything's going to go your way. You'll never suffer and you'll never have any pain. Ever. You're just perfect. Everything's going to smooth sailing. All downhill from here, baby. It's all, all good. It's all good. Everything's all good. You won't read that. You won't read that at all. This is not a true biblical view of real Christianity according to the Bible. A book that over 82% of Americans believe that they read all the time. Unbelievable. God doesn't ever say in his word that our best life is now. Not one verse, your best life is for now. Not one of them, you won't find one. Our best life, the Bible says, comes when we put off this, what this called, Paul calls it a temporary tent. You see, because we're in this flesh right now. 
And this sinful flesh that fights against God and fights against the Holy Spirit, if you're born again, your fleshly, sinful flesh even fights against the Holy Spirit that lives within you if you're a sealed child of God. And so one day we're going to put off this temporary tent because your life, maybe a hundred years, next to a billion years, wouldn't even be one raindrop in a bucket. You take one raindrop and you put it in a 50-gallon bucket, and that would be what a hundred years is up against a billion years. So this body, this physical body, is, is like one raindrop in a 50-gallon bucket of water. Our best life comes when we put off this tent and we go to live anew with God Almighty in the glorious kingdom of heaven forever. And we cannot lose focus of this. We cannot lose focus of this at all. If we do, if you lose focus of, it's supposed to be easy. Oh, I mean, I know it's going to be tough. Okay, it's going to be tough. It's going to be tough. Okay, I'm ready. I'm ready for it. If we lose focus of that, what can happen? Does anybody have any mind right now know what can happen? Because I've experienced it, and I know close brothers that have experienced it. And here's what happens. If you lose focus of the eternal life being the great one, and this one here, this temporary life, being difficult, being hard, okay, then what happens is, is when things go wrong, which, how often does that happen? Well, let's see. Oh, all the time. When things go wrong all the time, one, one little man called the devil, and he is little compared to God, tiny, he comes in there and he starts whispering, hey, if you were really walking with God, all this bad stuff wouldn't be happening to you. Oh, if you really were a servant of God, oh man, you would every, your life would be wonderful. You wouldn't be suffering. You wouldn't have any pain. You wouldn't have any agony. Well, that's a lie straight from the pit of hell. Tell that to John, folks. Tell that. Let's go to John. If we could talk to John right now. Well, he was in prison by her by Herod. Let's go to John and say, John. How is your best life now, John? How are you feeling, John? How does it feel to be where you are? And you know what? Like after they win the Super Bowl, they stand up and they're holding it. We're going to go to Disney World. I bet you he wouldn't say that. I bet you he wouldn't say that. I bet you he'd be in tears. And I bet you he'd say a little something like this. Oh, God. Thank you, Jesus. If it weren't for Jesus as he'd move his arms, the chains. If it weren't for Jesus, I would, have, I would have been already done. I don't know what I would have done if it weren't for Jesus, and he comforts me every moment I'm in here. As otherwise, it's tough. As he moves, the chains would be rubbing on the ground. John didn't have a best life now. You don't have a best life now. Christian, if you're out there listening to me and you really are walking for God and you're wondering, why is all this bad stuff keep happening to me? I love Jesus. If I really love Jesus, isn't it supposed to be great? Isn't it supposed to be wonderful? Well, not according to your Bible. Not according to your Bible. Now, our message today about John focuses on that aspect of the possible cost of being a follower of Christ. So finally, our message. I just had to pray, Lou. God threw that on my heart so bad this week. I just had to speak on that subject because that subject is so twisted right now in so many American so-called Christian churches. Health and wealth and prosperity and every, you're never supposed to suffer and you're never supposed to ever be in want or you're ever, never supposed to be in need. And that's not what I read in my Bible. That's not what you read in your Bible if you just read it with an open heart. So read verses 1 and 2 with me. And let's get into our learning about Herod and about how John the Baptist suffered his last days on this earth. Verse 1. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the report about Jesus and said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He is risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him. So, what am I reading here in verses 1 and 2 with my own little 
with my own little touch on them. Jesus doing some great works for God in Nazareth. Not a lot, remember, because he couldn't do many works. The works he did were still mighty. They were still awesome. Okay? But they weren't many, remember, because they had unbelief of who he said that he was. So Jesus walking around all Nazareth, his hometown, you could say, was his hometown, doing these miracles. Not many, but he's doing some. What else? He was doing all over the region of Galilee, which remember, Herod was a king, was the ruler of Galilee. He was doing a whole bunch of mighty works all over Galilee as a whole. I mean, everywhere he went, multitudes of people were following him. Hundreds and thousands were getting healed. He was the miracle man walking on the planet. Jesus, in case you're wondering, walked in all gifts to the Holy Spirit, all of them, 100% all the time. He never doubted, and he never struggled in doubt. He always persevered in God, and God worked through him like nobody else that will ever or is living or will ever live on the face of the planet because he was the Son of God. God very indwelling within him. Unlike us, we have this sinful flesh. Jesus was not a sinner. Herod hears about all that Christ is doing. And here's the big one. Here's what God showed me. His guilty conscience got to him because he murdered John. Look at verse 10. So he sent and had John beheaded in prison. Now, why do I believe? And you may be thinking, well, Pastor, I don't really know... John and Herod had a guilty conscience? I mean, do we, can we really see that Herod had a guilty conscience? Here's why I believe that Herod had a guilty conscience. And we see that in verses 1 and 2. As I mentioned earlier, Jesus doing all these wonderful works for God. Jesus doing all these mighty and awesome and powerful kingdom works for God. Long before, by the way, Herod ever killed John the Baptist. Yet, here in verses 1 and 2, all of a sudden he starts hearing about the works of Jesus. All of a sudden, quote-unquote, after John was dead, after he killed John. And then all of a sudden, he starts being concerned, because you can hear concern here in his voice. He's getting concerned here because he thinks that Jesus is the dead man John. What? And then verse 2, look at verse 2, and said to his servants, this is John the Baptist, he is risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him. Herod was a mighty king, had a lot of power. Since when does a mighty king with a lot of power just start discussing issues like this with his servants? I mean, he definitely had councils. He had he had other kings that he could have spoke with. He had his brother Philip, which was also a ruler as well. So yet he's discussing how he thinks John the Baptist is Jesus risen from the dead. I believe what was happening to Herod here was the, was, was the result of God's judgment on Herod for the murder of John. Ever heard the saying, mess with the bull and you get the horns? Well, see, here I believe that since he messed with a soldier of God, since Herod messed with and killed a soldier of God Almighty, that he had to suffer the side effects. And, of course, we know the Bible says that murder, which is what he did to John the Baptist, is a sin. Romans 12, 9. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay says the Lord. So we know what Herod did to John. Herod killed a great soldier for God Almighty. So now you don't think God just takes that laying down. Well, we just read it here. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. And then Galatians 6, 7, Paul writes, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. So you got to understand, every sin that you commit will have a consequence. So Herod committed sin. He murdered a man of God. I mean, murdering anybody's bad enough. But then now you murder a man of God. Well, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, and you will reap what you sow. We see a powerful king here living in fear of a dead man. Amazing. 
He killed John, and now he's worried that Jesus is John the Baptist come back from the dead to take revenge on him. I believe that Herod was living in fear, and that's why this all happened. That's why we even read verses 1 and 2, because Herod, I believe, had a guilty conscience. And you know what it's like to live with a guilty conscience? When you know you've done something wrong, it's like that old adage. You know, it's like that old thing. I've counseled lots of people, and here's one thing I see. If you've ever cheated on your wife, or as a wife, you've ever cheated on your husband, then you always are going to be afraid that your spouse is going to do the same thing to you. Because since you've done it, now you think, wow, I, I did that. Now you're always concerned that that other, your spouse, is going to be doing the same thing to you. And that's a true human fact. When, if you steal, you're always kind of afraid people are going to be stealing from you. If you rip people off, you're always looking, are they going to rip me off? Who's ripping me off? Who's ripping me off? It's a guilty conscience. And it's hard to live with a guilty conscience. So we see a guilty conscience Herod here living in fear of a dead man. And you can't have peace when you're living with a guilty conscience. So don't mess around and sin around and don't mess around especially and mess with a soldier of the kingdom of heaven or else you mess with the bull and you're going to get the horns now you may win you know herod won herod killed john the baptist but look what the consequences look at the repercussions that he had to suffer for doing that i believe so now verse three the sad end of a great soldier we're going to read them verse by verse and i'm going to work through them slowly Verse 3, For Herod had laid hold of John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had said to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. What do we see here? What do we see? We see Herod and Herodias living in an adulterous relationship. They were both married. They were both living in adultery. God's word says explicitly, Exodus 20, 14, you shall not commit adultery. And Deuteronomy 22, 22 gives us the effects of that living in adultery. If a man is found lying with a woman married to a husband, then both of them shall die. The man that lay with the woman and the woman. So you shall put away the evil from Israel. So in case you didn't know, adultery all those things, fornication, but adultery, more specifically, is an abomination unto God. The Bible says that God hates these things. He hates sin. And adultery is an abomination to God. So what does John the Baptist do? John the Baptist, a righteous man of God, standing on God's word, he was holding the king up to the standard of what a leader should be doing. Because after all, a leader of a nation, a leader of a kingdom should be held to a higher standard. They should be held to a higher account. So what does John the Baptist do in verse 4? Because John said to him, it's not lawful for you to have her. So John the Baptist stands as a mighty, bold man of God, he stands up against King Herod and he says, what you're doing is wrong in the sight of God Almighty, King. What you're doing is wrong. You've got your brother Philip's wife. Talk about an evil, wicked situation. Bad enough to commit adultery with any man's wife or a woman to commit adultery you know, against her husband with another man that's also married. But now you talk about Herod was so wicked and Herodias were so wicked Herodias was Herod's brother's wife. His own brother's wife. I mean, this, this goes beyond reprobate. This is like from the pits of hell, wicked. That you would get together and have an adulterous relationship with your own brother's wife. I mean, wow, it, 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 it's, it's mind-blowing. And so... John the Baptist, as I said earlier, living his not 
best life now, what happens to him for his faithfulness unto God, for standing on the word of God. Verse 3, For Herod laid hold of John and bound him in, put him in prison. So John's reward for standing up for God, for calling out sin, not that he wanted to call him out to, to destroy him. You know, you never, especially as a righteous preacher of God, never want to call any sin to somebody's attention because you're just rubbing it in their face. Oh, yeah, look what you're doing, you dirty, rotten sinner. Absolutely not. I, as well as John the Baptist, and I know many great soldiers of God, bring up these sinful matters so that the person sees it and they repent because we love the people. Her uh, John the Baptist loved Herod and he didn't want to see Herod die and go to hell because any adulterer, as God said, as I mentioned earlier, any adulterer or fornication shall not inherit the kingdom of God. So Herod and Herodias were on their way to hell. And so John the Baptist loved them and didn't want to see them go there. So he stands up before them, holds them accountable to being leader of the nation, tells them what you're doing is wrong, and of course, in his hope that the king would say, oh, you're so right, John. And then repent and get right with God and get saved instead of living wickedly. Now, believe it or not, Herod was not only had this guilty conscience, but he was also a coward and a weak coward at that because he only bound him and put him in prison because of verse 5. And although he wanted to put him to death, he feared the multitude because they counted John as a prophet. So what did, what did Herod do? He didn't have the guts to stand against the majority of the people which believed John to be a righteous man the people were all for John. He's a godly man. They defended John. They knew John was a mighty man of God. So Herod, the coward that he was, couldn't, didn't have the guts, you'd say, to do what he really wanted to do. He really wanted to put John the Baptist to death. He really, oh, God, I'll kill that man for doing that. I'll kill him. He, how dare he? How dare he tell me that I'm doing wrong? How dare who tells me I'm wrong? But, but well, 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 we'll lock him up. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll teach him. You, I want to kill him. But he, he would just wouldn't kill him because of the people. So he feared the people. So he not only was a weak man to have to throw a man of God into prison, but he was also a coward. But you see here, verse six and seven. But when Herod's birthday was celebrated, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and. She pleased Herod. Therefore he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. So she, having been prompted by her mother, said, Give me John the Baptist's head on a platter. So stop. Uh, <laughs> what do we see here? We see that what, John the what, what Herod, this coward king, couldn't do because of his fear of the people, we see his even more wicked, adulterous woman that he's with having no problem doing what Herod could not do. She seizes an opportunity. Herod speaks. The Bible says that the, the, it's foolish to just speak quickly. A wise man holds his tongue. A foolish man is quick to speak. So Herod here gets excited his Herodias' daughter is dancing. She's doing a wonderful birthday dance for Herod. He gets excited. He's, he's pumped. You know how when you're watching a performance and you get like excited, you're like, oh, wow, that's awesome. That's amazing. So he's a foolish man here because he puts his foot in his mouth. Yeah, I'll give you whatever you ask, even up to half my kingdom. Well, I don't know about you, folks. I wouldn't give away half my house for anybody that did anything nice for me because they danced real nice or because they smiled at me real nice. That's just an absolute foolish thing to do. You don't just give away half your kingdom because some nice pretty girl danced to dance for you for on your birthday. That's absolutely ridiculous. But Herod, nonetheless, this is what he does. He gives her this oath. 
Herodias, this wicked, adulterous woman, seizes this opportunity and says, you should have killed him. She was probably after Herod the whole time John was in prison. Why don't you just put him to death? Now, why don't you? He spoke out against us. You need to just put him to death. Just get rid of that man. I don't, want to, I don't even want to see that. I don't even want to know he's breathing no more. And Herod's like, no, 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 I, I, I can't. The, the people, yeah, you know, they, they rebel against me. And, and so Herodias seizes this opportunity and works nonetheless through her daughter, her young, probably teenage daughter. We don't exactly know the age of Herodias, but he, she works through her young teenage daughter and says, ask him, tell him, this is what I want for half my kingdom. I could have, Now think about it. Think about it just if you're her. You just heard this king say, I'll give you even up to half my kingdom for a dance. And so you could have as much, I mean, you could have riches beyond riches. You could have goods and spices and all the wonderful things you could ever have wanted in your whole life. And she doesn't want any of that. Because on her whole mind, since poor John the Baptist was just being a loving man of God, all she had in her mind was revenge. And so she seizes the opportunity through revenge and goes through her daughter. Wicked woman. Enough to do this on your own. Enough to do this and do this act on your own. To go through, to just be you and say, this is what I want done, hon, or Whatever, John, or Herod, or, you know, hey, listen, if you love me, this is what you do for me. Enough that you do it on your own. Wicked woman works through her own daughter. Prompts her. Tell him, tell him, give me John the Baptist's head on a platter. Wow. Absolutely, absolutely gross. And verse 9, so she asks, verse 9, and the king was sorry. Nevertheless, because of the O's and because of those who sat with him, he commanded it to be given to her. So stop right there. Go, go to the beginning there. And the king was sorry. Don't be fooled at first thinking, because I always was until God really showed me this just a little bit ago. Don't be fooled to think that the king was really sorry, like, like sorry, like we think of sorry in our days. Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry for what I just did. Oh, what did I, what oath, that rash oath. The Bible speaks against making rash oaths. Oh, I shouldn't have, oh, I shouldn't have done that. I'm so sorry. Now i got to put John the Baptist to death. Don't think for a moment, and if you are, you're wrong, and I'll show you why you're wrong. Don't think for a moment that that was really the sorry that Herod was really feeling here. He was sorry that he had to do something that was going to make him not in good standing with the people. He was sorry that he was going to have to do something that was going to make the people angry. He was not only prideful, but he was a coward. It, it was not godly sorrow because we know what real godly sorrow is. Godly sorrow, the Bible talks about it, and Paul writes about it in 2 Corinthians 7.10, for godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation. Not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. So look what happens with Herod here. We see it. The sorrow of the world produces death. Herod was a dead man walking. He wasn't sorry that he had to put John the Baptist. Oh, I'm oh I wish I didn't have to kill this poor man of God. No. I'm sorry that now the people are going to learn that I was a wicked man and I had to kill this great man of God. Now all these problems I'm going to have to face because I killed this man. Because if he was really sorry, according to the Bible, to godly sorrow, then what would have happened? He would have not done what he did, no matter how bad it made him look. No matter how much he was prideful. No matter how much he Oh, but the, the people sitting here, oh, I'm going to going to be made a fool of. Oh, gosh. If he was really godly sorrow, or I should say if he was really godly sorry, he would have relented. He would have repented from doing what he had just said, and he would have gone back on his word, and he would have told her, no, you know, I can't give you that one thing. Just Ask for, you know, a million dollars or ask for a thousand talents or something, honey. I just can't give you that one man because, you know, he's a man of God. Oh, and he would have been scorned and oh, he would have been shamed. But oh, a great man of God's life would have been spared. 
So we go on in verse 9. Nevertheless, because of the olds and because of those who sat with him, he commanded it to be given to her. So he said, well, I made an oath. I can't go against my word. Oh, well, I guess I'll just have to deal with the repercussions. I guess I'll just have to deal with the people that are going to be angry with me. I guess. Verse 10. So he sent and had John beheaded. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl. And she brought it to her mother. Oh, my goodness gracious. The wicked act of two adulterous people standing in opposition against a great soldier for God. And John the Baptist, a loving messenger for God, a great soldier for Jesus Christ. We see what happens. He spends his last moments in a dirty, dank, nasty prison. And then Herod gives the one order, one quick order. Yeah, go do it. Go behead him. And then just think, this head of John the Baptist being brought in the middle of this young girl's birthday party, or in the middle of Herod's birthday party, this young girl who just wanted to just dance for her mom's fella, and all of a sudden she's put into a position. Wow. Could you imagine that, you know? Somebody's birthday party, you're going there, oh, cake, oh, it's good time, dancing. And the next thing you know, you have some poor man of God's head on a platter that's being brought into you. And then you have to take that platter because after all, you know, she did it. She obeyed her mom. So the platter with the head and all the blood was brought to her. Wow, what a wonderful day she had. Because I don't believe at all, and I don't find any textual or textual script scripture that tells me this. I don't believe that Herodias' daughter was in on this whole thing that Herodias was doing here. I believe that Herodias was just an innocent girl having nothing to do with this, and she was just at a birthday party. I could be wrong, but again, I don't find any scriptural proof to support that. Nevertheless, what a horrible end, a sad end to a mighty soldier of God. Verse 12, Then his disciples came, took away the body and buried it, and went and told Jesus. So the disciples, John's disciples, because he had disciples just like Jesus did, John's disciples come because obviously, you know, now that he's dead, there's no, lo no longer for his body to be in prison. So his disciples come, take away the body, they go bury it, they give John a proper burial, they give him an actual burial. Because if the king and Herodias would have had anything to do with it, he probably just would have thrown him on the side of the road and given him no burial at all. But Herodias and Herod, their wicked scheme and their plan and their desire finished up. And they come, they let the disciples come take the body and go bury it. And that's it. And then Jesus goes and hears about it. Sad, sad, sad end. Sad end to the life of a mighty soldier for God. Now, in closing, in closing, please don't misunderstand my message today. That was not my intention for you to misunderstand my message today, I'm not trying to scare you from either becoming or continuing following or going to follow Christ. That's not my intention at all. My intention was not to get up here. And I'm going to give a message that's going to scare people so much that they're going to want to not follow Christ anymore ever. Or somebody that's out there, I can't follow Christ. What if that happens to me? Oh my gosh, that guy, look at what John the Baptist went through. I could never even be a mighty man of God like that. And look what happened to him. Oh, now that that preacher said that, I, I could never follow Christ. Because that could, that could happen to me. That wasn't my intention. That was what God gave me to speak on. But there's a huge point that we could easily miss, but we're not going to. Remember, in this life, you will have trouble. Jesus didn't say that to just Christians, and he didn't just say that to people that aren't Christians. He made a statement, in this world, you will have trouble. Absolutely, it's true across the board. You and your life will have trouble whether you follow Christ or whether you don't follow Christ you will have trouble and tribulation in this world. 
the whole world and your entire life will be full of troubles, in fact. Full of problems. And I can guarantee that. If anybody's breathing, they're having some kind of trouble. If anybody's heart's beating, they're having some kind of trouble and some kind of tribulation, some kind of pain is going on in their lives because that is just this world as a whole. This world, in this world, Jesus said, you will have trouble. There is no such thing as an easy, no stress, worry-free life. It just does not exist. And if you show me, bring me somebody, call me, email me, because I want to know what you're doing to not have any stress and have such an easy life. Because if you got bills, or even if you got a multitude of money, you got problems. Because you're either A, worried about your money, or B, maybe you're concerned and worried that you ain't got enough to pay the bills this coming weekend, or this coming uh, first of the month when you got to pay rent. There's no such thing as an easy, no worry, no stress life doesn't exist. So here's how I look at it. Here's what God's shown me upon all this. You can either A, and there's an A1 and an A2 here, you can either go through all the terrible things that will happen to you by yourself or with some, you know, flawed human counsel. You know, a lot of people when they have trouble in life, what do they do? They go to some, you know, some psychiatrist, some flawed human mentality. They go to somebody that can, they think that could help them. But unfortunately, in case you didn't know this, most psychiatrists, if not all, have to see a psychiatrist themselves. Because psychiatrists are just as screwed up as people that aren't psychiatrists. And that's just a fact of the world. Because we're all screwed up. Okay? So that's A, part, that's one, part A and part B. You can either go through this, all the terrible things in this life by yourself or with some flawed human counsel. You could do that. That's A and B of one. Or you could go through all the terrible troubles that you're going to go through with the great Redeemer, Jesus Christ, God Almighty, come down in the flesh to save you from your sins. You see, although living for Christ is difficult, and you may even be persecuted for that. You may be even tortured for that. Or you may even lose your life for doing that. I have a question here. Is Jesus Christ not worth it? Because I can tell you one thing, time-tested over almost 15 years I've been walking with Jesus. There's only one thing that's a certainty, folks. Only one thing and one thing only. In this world, you will have trouble. Anything you try to put your hope in or get peace from in this world will let you down. They'll all leave you empty. There's no lasting peace. Well, sure, you can go out there and you can get drunk. And you can smoke weed and you can get high or you can do crack and cocaine. And yeah, that, that makes you have a temporary type of peace until it all wears off. There's no lasting peace in the things of this world or of this world or all creation itself. Nothing. Your spouse will let you down. Your kids will let you down. Your best friends will let you down. Your car will break down. They'll yell at you at your job, and people will cut you off on the road. But there's only one place that you can go for real peace and real joy, lasting peace and lasting joy, and that's with a relationship with Jesus Christ and the things that he teaches and the ways of himself in him. Jesus Christ says, or the Bible says of God and Jesus in Hebrews 13, 5 through 6, let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have, for he himself has said, listen to what God slash Christ says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So the writer of Hebrews says, verse 6, so we may boldly say, folks, not just 
you know, oh, well, you know what? This is, you know, we may boldly say, he says in verse 6, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? He didn't say, say it timidly. He said, we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper and I will not fear. What can man do to me? Jesus says intimately in Matthew 11, 28-30, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Your parents, your grandparents, your cousins, your nephews, your uncles, your relatives, and your aunts will die. And they'll leave you. They'll leave you here on this earth in a heartbeat. In one heartbeat, they'll leave you. Because one heartbeat could be your last heartbeat. And they'll be gone. You could lose your job in a heartbeat. I've seen it happen. One day a fella comes in and they're walking him out that same day. He came into work thinking, I got a job. You'll lose your job. You can lose your job. You can miss a, a few payments on your house and they can kick you right out of your house because you lost your job. All those things can change. But one thing will never change. God's Word says of God that He is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. God never changes. And as we read, he won't ever leave you and he won't ever forsake you. Listen, God doesn't go on vacation. God doesn't ever take a nap. God's 1-800 number is never even busy. He's always there, just waiting. How is he worth how is he worth anything you could ever face? Can he, Jesus Christ, is worth anything that you could ever face in this life? Anything. Knowing him is more precious than anything that you could go through, any kind of trouble, any kind of tribulation that you could ever go through on this planet. Jesus Christ is worth it. For you see, he defeated death. He conquered sin and conquered death on the cross so that we could have peace, not temporary peace, not peace for a moment, not peace for a day, a permanent peace with God Almighty. And that's what Jesus Christ did for you and me and everyone. Think about it like this. Christ showed it to me like this, this, this last week or two. Christ and God, they're peace producers. All peace is produced through them. So I ask you now, as I always do, I was praying, I was just praying yesterday, I was closed out my message and I said, Lord, it just doesn't feel right. What's, what's left? And God said, one last thing, examination time. So I would ask everybody now, anybody that's listening anywhere ever, to examine themselves and their lives. Where are you at with Jesus Christ today? Are you a mighty soldier for God's kingdom, working your way to be like John the Baptist, or maybe you're already like John the Baptist? Because we know that he was a mighty soldier for God. Or are you a soldier for your kingdom? Which kingdom are you working on building in your life? Because the Bible says that you can only build one kingdom. You'll either build your kingdom or, you'll, or you will build God's kingdom. What does it mean to be a soldier for Christ? What does it mean to be sold out a soldier for Jesus Christ? Number one, you have to surrender to Him and you have to give Him the reins of your life. That's where it starts. Give Him the control of who you are. Trust Him totally. I need you, Jesus, and I can't go a day without you. He wants holiness. He wants you to hate the sin that's in your life, and he wants you to turn to him, and he wants you to knock off the evil things and the ways that you're living. 
Because the Bible says we're all unholy and we live wickedly. And God says, if you come to me, I want you to turn away from that stuff and I want you to turn to me. Words of your mouth, actions of your body. So is your life holy and pure? Do you have a true relationship, a true relationship with God? Seeking Christ daily and God daily. Are you even promoting Jesus in the words of your very mouth wherever you go and to whoever you talk to? Because if you are, then you're working on building God's kingdom and God's working on building His kingdom in your life. If you're not and you're building your kingdom, you live by your rules. You do the things in your life that you want to do. You are the ruler of your life. You trust in your ways and your good deeds, and your language is, ah, whatever. You know, I, I can talk whatever, because, you know, after all, God loves me. And after all, I can, you know, just live any way I want, because, you know, hey, God loves me. You're rude, and you speak with profanity, and you're uncaring toward others. You break all the laws of the land, and you break all God's laws, and you don't even care. It is what it is. Hey, God loves me, and I prayed a prayer one time, and you know, it is what it is, and that's just it. I'm, I'm saved. And, well, if that's the case, and you're the second person, and you're the, king, you're the ruler of your life, and the Bible says unless God is the ruler of your life, you're not okay with Him. So I would encourage you, no matter what, examine your life today, whether you live for yourself or your life is surrendered to Christ. Because either way, God knows it. God knows whether you're living for Him or whether you're living for yourself. Either way. And if you find yourself to be living for yourself, please repent today. Because although you could go through all those, maybe you could go through all those evil things that I just spoke about today that happened to a great soldier for God, Christ is way worth it. And the peace that he gives you will be there with you even though you go through those things. And even when you're just going through troubles and tribulations in this world too. And if you're on that path, keep on that path. And keep serving God. Pray with me, please. Lord. Thank you, dear God, for this day. And thank you, Lord God, for your love and for your word and for your truth. Lord Jesus, I pray you convict hearts today, Lord God, and show people where they're at, Lord God. For only your Holy Spirit can do that, Lord God. I just pray that people would examine their lives intently just to see where they're at. And Lord, they'd realize that they're either with you or they're against you, Lord. And if they're with you, I pray that they'd grow stronger in that and that your faith would grow in that and that peace would grow in you in that. And if they're against you, Lord God, then I pray that they'd realize that and they'd turn around about face and do a 180 and turn to Christ and surrender right now before it's too late. God, we know that you love us and that you came and you prayed a, a paid a mighty high price for us so that we could have peace with God. I just pray, Lord God, your Holy Spirit would work on us all. Have your way within us all. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.